So take your Bibles now tonight and go to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. As we turn there, uh, I want to challenge you um, as we considered, I mean, I love this because Ephesians for us this last summer at Northland Camp was the focus we took. I mean, we, we went Ephesians 4 uh, verses 17 to 32 was our, was our major, major thrust this summer, this past summer. This next summer, it looks like as we're coming up, as we have a kind of an Olympic kind of a theme as well, you know, because of the Olympic year, um, the plan is our, our, we're looking towards Hebrews chapter, chapter, uh, chapter 12 and just all the blessings of running the race and what that means uh, for, the, for the true believer. But as I look at this passage of Scripture, remember Ephesians, it's going to be chapter 4, but it's, it's, it's really sliced right down the middle. If you study Ephesians, and I don't know if you guys have done a study, Pastor, have you guys done a, a study through the years at some point on Ephesians or whatever like that? Okay, so um, it, the nature of it, it's like sliced. I mean, you've got the first three chapters that are, that are doctrine. I mean, you start off with chapter one. I mean, you start dealing with the heavenlies. I mean, and it is the heavenlies. I mean, some have described it as like a little Cessna airplane flying through the Himalayas. I mean, you're seeing major peak of doctrine after peak of doctrine, and it's like you jump right into it, and it's amazing. If you want smoke to come out your ears, try to really comprehend really well Ephesians chapter one, you know, and then chapter two, and you got chapter three, and really the, the glories of what God is doing. I love chapter three. It concludes with really showing us that Really what God the Father is doing, really through God the Son, in the idea of the nature of the church, because he's brought that together, and yet for his, whole, for his glory. And that's really the theme as you begin to consider the book of Ephesians. You hit chapters 4, 5, and 6, and they're like so practical. And, and once it's the first three chapters, there's, one, there's actually one command. It's to remember and then you have the last three chapters, and it's just bombarding you with command after exhortation, so practical. And so I'm just telling you that God wants us to know some things before we do this, but I realize due to time, I'm going to the practical side for us, okay? So here we go, Ephesians chapter 4, and I want to take us to verse 17. As you noticed uh, yesterday, as I was concluding with Ephesians 4, showing us really the idea that God has gifted all people, all true believers he's gifted, for the sake of the church. And then he's gifted the church with specific teachers within Scripture. We've seen that. But really, as we look at this passage of Scripture um, in verse 17 to verse 32, I want to focus in real quick on verse 22. Look at this closer. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, which is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray this evening. Father, thank you for my friends here. I pray that this message for us as we look in the scriptures would target our hearts. Lord, each one of us have areas in our spiritual life that, that need transformation. And Lord, when we try to change on our own, our own strength, our own power, we, we realize how, how futile that is and how it doesn't work and the discouragement of that. And yet when we seem to maybe make some strides in our own strength and our own power, we're then arrogant and proud. God, we need you. We need you at all times. Not just that we would come to you being declared righteous, being, being born again or saved, but that we need you each day for daily salvation from sin. And praise God that those who you have saved, 
Those who you justify, you will sanctify, and praise God, you will glorify. So God, we look forward to the day as believers where one day we will be with you without sin at all, with new bodies. But God, until that day, as we're here, help us, God, that we would walk with you. And I pray that you would just use this to help us in our spiritual life. Lord, for anyone who's without Christ here, and Lord, again, numerically or statistically, there would be some. So God, would you stir hearts and draw them to yourself, that they would repent and they would trust in Christ alone. Thank you, God, tonight for all that you're going to do. Please work through me and in me. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. It was a number of years ago where in the summers when I began, God got a hold of my life. It was 93, and I was at camp, and so that's why I've always loved camps. But 90, um, the summer of 94, I actually went and I went to suffer for Jesus uh, on an island called Hawaii. And I was going to work uh, at a Christian camp there. How many of you think it would be fun to suffer for Jesus in Hawaii? Okay, I was like, all right, okay, okay. And uh, I went there, worked at this camp called The Winds. It was patterned after the wilds of North Carolina. And so a small little camp, maybe, ma- maybe max at 60 campers, maybe for the whole week, you know, you might have. You might have maybe only 30, you know, it just depends. But I remember as I went and worked there, it was interesting. I worked there one summer in 94. And then 95, I went and actually worked at a larger camp and really felt like I got some training to really help. And then the next summer, I felt like, you know what, I, th- I would love to go back there and if I can, to make an impact. Actually, interesting, in Hawaii, the, we would have like the best kids of the island uh, from Christian homes, maybe you could say at times. And, um, and if I had seven kids in my cabin, six of the seven were from broken homes. And these were the best families, you could say, of the island. It's really tough. You know, it's just a different culture. I remember actually at one point in, you know, two years later, I have this guy in my cabin, his name's Neil, and Neil, I was so excited to have him, he was in my cabin two years prior, I'm like, that's crazy, and he's a senior in high school, so I'm like, hey, Neil, how are you doing? I was so excited to see him, and the first thing that came out of his mouth was this, he said, hey, just so you know, I'm not going to make any spiritual decisions this week, and I thought, oh, that's weird, like, why, why, like, most people say hi, you know what I mean? Um, and, and then he said that, and then he got even more passionate in his voice, and he said something like this. He said, you know, you just can't change. He says, you don't understand how hard it is to live for the Lord on an island like this, like with drugs and peer pressure. And just, it's just impossible. You feel like you can't really serve God, and you can't really. He says, we go do well at camp. You know, God gets all of our life, it seems, and then it's like a month later, it's like no one's serving God. They're all tanking in their spiritual life. No one can live for God. It's just, it's impossible to live for God on an island like this. I get it. In this sense, have you ever been discouraged in your spiritual life? Have you ever seen to make strides in your spiritual life and things seem to be going, wow, it was great, and then all of a sudden it's like, ah, and you tank, you, you fall flat on your face, you know, spiritually? And I think that's really where he was. He was just discouraged. How many of you have ever made some form of spiritual stride only to find yourself fall back, you know what I mean, and something like that or mess up? Yeah. And so the truth is, if you've been a Christian for the last 24 hours, you could raise your hand, you know what I'm saying? But anyway. When I think about that, um, I knew Neil was discouraged, and I, I knew he needed to be encouraged, but I looked around. I said, Neil, wait a second. Um, see that, that girl counselor over there? And he said, yeah. I said, what island is she from? And he said, well, she's from this island. Has God changed her life? Yeah. Well, what about the guy counselor over there? I mean, what island is he from? Well, he's from this island. 
Has God changed his life? Yeah. I said, Neil, you, you really can change, but you must change God's way. And the whole idea is this whole idea of a you know, decision for decision's sake or decisionism. No, we're not talking about that. But we're talking about where God really works in your heart and your life. And yes, you do go, you know, by God's grace, I want to obey you and follow you this way. But how do we really change? I think that's the big struggle as believers. And if you don't face that struggle, maybe you're not in Christ. Because in Christ, there is that struggle of, ah, oh, oh, and the flesh. And, and yet you've got the, the world and you've got the devil. I mean, there's, there's a lot of pressures in different places. And, and how do we really change? And so tonight, I want to take us through just a simple aspect of Scripture of how do we change God's way. As we look at this, in one sense, maybe you could even call this message, living out the new life. If you're in Christ, he's given you a new life. And you as a believer need to live it out. And you don't do it in your own strength, you do it in his power and his strength. But as we look at this closely, then how do we do that again as we see it? Notice verse 17. It says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. How do they walk? Now again, this is not just non-Jews because if I were to ask the crowd here, how many of you are actually Jewish, would you raise your hand? I'm curious, any Jewish people in the room? And that means no. Okay, so that means we're not Jewish, so that means what are you? In Scripture, you would be a Gentile. Okay, so here we are. And he's not just saying don't walk like the Gentiles, and he has, and this has nothing to do with the physical walk, you know what I mean? So it's like, you know, you're, you're thinking about how people, you know, don't, don't strut like a Gentile, you know what I mean? No, 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 you know. The idea is that you don't conduct your life like the pagan people who don't know the Lord conduct their life. You don't, you, don't, you don't live like them. You're different if you're in Christ. Watch this as we go further. How do they conduct themselves? Well, the Gentiles conduct themselves in the futility of their minds, the vanity of their minds, the empty thinking. What do pagan or unsaved people think about well, they think about self all the time, you know? They, 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 they live for self. Uh, when it comes to their thoughts of even maybe God, the truth is, is like, they don't know God, and so now it's like, you know, hey, maybe he's like the big man upstairs, or like the lucky rabbit's foot in the sky, you know, the big man, the boss man, you know, it's like this, and he's like my co-pilot or something like that. You know, it's, it's crazy to think about what people can even say. But if you notice, the, the lost person lives in empty thinking. When you, you consider, why did God make you? God actually, he made you for the sole purpose of living for him and, and, and glorifying who he is. But when, but when we choose to go our own way and in sinful condition, we, just, we, just, we don't go towards that direction. And so now we live a life that's aimless, it's meaningless, because the truth is that's not the way you were designed. We were designed for him. So as you look closer, this is the way they think. Verse, verse 18, that they are darkened in their understanding. When it comes to spiritual understanding, they don't see it. They're blinded. Darkened. As you consider the idea of darkness, even too, when you think of pitch darkness, you, you can't see straight. It's scary to walk in pitch darkness because you never know what the next step may bring, and it could bring some significant danger for us. 
So here's this, these people and their spiritual understanding. They're in darkness. And then it says they're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. So now alienated, they're like estranged from God. They don't know God. And there's no relationship they can have with God because you can't have one apart from relationship with Christ. Remember that scripture teaches there's one mediator between God and man. And it's the man, Christ Jesus. You can't know God unless you know Christ. And so when you look at this, there's a person who actually when it comes to spiritual things, they don't know him. They're not close to him at all because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. So now they're spiritually ignorant. Their heart is hardened of their own way. And this is the way the lost people are. Go further, verse 19. They have become callous. And they've given themselves up to sensuality. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Consider this. This is, this is a lost person who goes after their immorality or their, their lust. And as they go after this, it just keeps spiraling down. Because just like you think about greed, when it comes to money, you always want more. I mean, I think of like as, as they asked Bill Gates at some point in time. You know, I don't know if you know who that is, but he's got a lot of money. And they asked him at one point in time, now that you've achieved these goals, this is years ago, what do you want now? And you know what he said? I want more. Because greed is never satisfied. And lust is the same way. It's never satisfied. That's why the porn addict goes back and back and back to it. The immorality, and you watch the spiraling down of all of these things. And this is, the, this is the nature of a lost person who doesn't know Christ. So sure enough, they practice this. It doesn't, it's not saying that they go to, to the extreme and they just, they just all delve as much as possible. But this is, the, this, is the, this is the way of a lost person. And you go further. Notice verse 20, though, I love as it changes here. He says, but that is not the way you learn Christ. Or you could say, Jesus did not teach you how to live like the pagans, not if you're in Christ. And notice the terminology here. Learned Christ heard about him, were taught in him. It's like you go to the school of Jesus, you know. As you get saved, he is teaching you to live a whole different way and as a true believer. And it's not something you, you, just, you just put on, you're forcing. No, because it's, it's happened here. That's why the normal person before they're saved, the Bible says the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. Neither could you could say he or even she know them. Why? Because they're spiritually discerned. So, so a lost person, they don't know the truth. They, they can't understand it. Again, blinded even and darkened in this. But now you think of the believer. Jesus didn't teach you how to live like a pagan. Not if you're in Christ. We are different in heart, in mind, in lifestyle. That, that's what happens when you get saved. And the truth is, is, this might reveal that some people clearly are not saved, who even claim to be saved. It's interesting to me when a person claims Christ and yet just delves in their sin and they go after it consistently and they just, they want to just so embrace everything within the world and the lifestyle, everything. And you're going, wait a second here. Have you really come to Christ? Because did Jesus teach you to live like that? And if you're in Christ, we are different. And so as we look at this even closer, he speaks of those things. And then he says this, assuming that you have heard him, 
heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, what did he teach you? Here it is. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay, a lot of words there, but in a simple way, how do we change God's way? How do we live out the new life? It really begins with, number one, radical amputation. And the way I say it that way, you look at the passage here, it speaks of putting off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desire. So this element of radical amputation or putting it off. But it's interesting because when you look at it in the language, it's actually not the idea of like a command here to put it off. It's like assuming that this has happened if you are in Christ. That's what happened to you at the moment of conversion. So at the moment of conversion, what did you do? You said, I don't want my sin. I I, I want Christ. I I turn from this to Messiah. Jesus, rescue me. You're turning to Christ. Actually, interesting as you consider the put off, and then you think of this whole idea of renewing our mind. What happened even at that moment of conversion to your mind and heart were being renewed? What does he say versus what I think and what I say to the point where then you look at this idea of to put on. This is what happened again at salvation. You put on then the new man. It's like a, the word picture gives us a picture of changing of clothes. And I would say to you, as I think about this, as we were traveling here, um, I got to the point where, seriously, like, I, I get here, and we came through a storm, okay? So, like, I went through a, we were like, you know, and you guys went through the storm, too, Saturday, okay? I think it was Saturday morning for you. So, here I was, I go... It's like in the morning, and we're like taking, like trying to figure out, okay, is it going to rain right now? And then all of a sudden it stops for a second. Okay, go do this stuff. You know, you know, you're trying to get the trailer together. I'm even like wiping off slide out stuff because I realize as I pull things in, I'm going to get drips. I'm going to get all kinds of stuff. And then it's like at one point I'm like, okay, we got to go now dump the sewage. And there's like a spot right there. So we got to, you know, Corey, help me. This is like, you know, it wasn't like a fully, you know, functioning thing. We had to pick off some stuff. We had to move. So like almost like a manhole cover kind of feel to do this in a sense at the church. And it was a, you know, it was a kind of a dirty job. If you know what I'm talking about, and so as we're doing all of this stuff and trying to get, you know, meanwhile you're 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 leaving and you're washing your hands real good and everything. And I'm driving on the road, and you're kind of drying off from rain. And then we we get here and I I open up the door and I'm and it's you know it was in the afternoon, and it was like 900 degrees. And I'm like, whoa, it's, I wasn't expecting that. I just, you know, Minnesota, you know, it's supposed to be cold. Anyway, and uh, so I get out, I'm like, whoa. And then, so then as I kind of set up the trailer, at some point when we're coming in, I remember going into the trailer and just, and taking off the dirty shirt, and I, I put on some deodorant, I'm kind of getting real personal here, and then put on another shirt. But I, can I tell you this? I didn't go to bed like that. Okay, because I mean, already at this point, you're already smelling. You kind of feel like you stink a little bit. I'm just trying to, you know, help a little bit. But the idea is when you get really, really dirty, what do you do? You don't just take off the old and, and kind of like spray yourself down. I mean, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's unfortunate. It's like a teenager with the ax or something. You know, like that's, that's a shower. No, it doesn't work that way, you know. And so you got to take a shower, clean up, and then you put on the clean clothes. This is the word picture you get for true conversion. This does seem to show you've done this in the past, although verse 20, um, verse 23 shows you something that's present tense, okay? 
But this is the word picture. If you have been saved, this is what's gone on. Now, notice it closer there. So the idea of, I say radical amputation, because when I think of other passages, I think of the, the parallel passage in Colossians. Mortify the deeds of the flesh. Okay. I think of Jesus. And what did Jesus teach? He taught if your hand would cause you to sin, chop it off. If your foot would lead you to sin, cut it off. If your eye would cause you to sin, pluck it out. Uh, again, he wasn't saying, hey, you know what you need to do? You need to go chop off all your limbs, you know, if you really want to get to heaven. It's like, no, no, no. But in the process of us seeing this, we're, we're seeing God's heartbeat towards sin. If you don't think your sin is all that bad, then maybe focus in on the crucifixion and consider what happened with Jesus and whose sin he was paying for. Because I think the problem is sometimes as believers, we just don't see sin as all that bad. I mean, you know, it's not just, I, don't, I, know, I, I know I sin, but I mean, who does it, Jeremy? You know, clearly you don't see the sin the same way God sees it. And then we start making excuses. I mean, we, we kind of go back to the garden, you know, almost in a sense where, you know, Eve, you know, you know, first of all, you know, you know, Adam, what did you do? Well, it's not my fault. It was the woman who you gave to me. Oh, wait, now I'm taking it a step further. You, know, you gave her, God, that's your fault. And what did the woman say? She's like, well, you know, it's not me. It's like the, the snake. The, the devil made me do it, you know? And then you got like the snake that had no legs to stand on, you know? I mean, it's, you know, it's like, and there's an element where it's like a blame shift. Um, and you can see this within a family. family. I, I, think of, I think of like sometimes, again, maybe a wife uh, who's saying, you know, you don't understand what I have to live with, you know, each day. He comes home around five, six o'clock, and it's like, and I got to pick up all the pieces. And what is, in one sense, what is she saying? It's not my fault. You know, it's really his. And then what is he saying? Well, she, you know, she's on my case all the time. You know, rah, rah. Sometimes in the morning, she's like a self-starter. She's like, rah, 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 on my case. And Jeremy, the whole point is I, I'm living and I've got to, and that's what I got to live with. And so, so what are they saying? It's not my fault. And then you have teenagers saying, if my parents weren't hypocrites, you know, and they're saying that maybe. And then you've got um, my, you got the adults, the parents saying, if my kids would just obey. What is everyone doing? They're blame shifting. And let me remind you, the blood of Jesus does not cleanse you from the excuses you make, but the blood of Jesus will cleanse you from all sin. You have to, you have to call it what it is. You have to come to grips with it, what it is, and quit making excuses. You might say, well, you know, you know it's almost like a sponge. You've seen a sponge that, that might look really clean, and then you squeeze it, and what's really inside comes out. And you're like, ew, you know. Now, you could say, well, then don't squeeze me. You know, that's the problem. Well, well Jesus, you could say, was squeezed, but what came out of him? I mean, even at the cross, Father, forgive them if they don't know what they do. 
You consider the nature of a true believer who follows the Lord, and he describes to put off this old self. That's the person you were before you were saved, which belongs to your former manner of life. If you're in Christ, that's who you used to be. No longer, praise God, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. It's just corruption, and it's these deceitful desires. You think, if I just had this, I'd be satisfied. If I just did this, I would be satisfied. And isn't that the way Deceitful desires are the lusts. As I consider that, I, I think, of, you know, you know what it's like growing up. I mean, I grew up and I'm like, you know, I thought, I remember seeing some commercial. Now, now you know what a commercial is, don't you? A commercial is simply a temptation. Actually, if you want to understand temptations better, watch commercials in a sense, you know, but you'll also be tempted in watching them. You know, because what are the commercials saying? Man, you need this product. You can't live without this. Everybody else has it. Don't you want to be like everybody else? And you're like, yeah, I can't live without that. I need that, you know, and you, you start buying things. So I'm watching a commercial as a kid. And man, it's these kids playing at the racetrack. I mean, they got this thing called set up, you know, and, and they put these cars on the racetrack and they're playing. I mean, the music's cool. They're giving each other high fives, you know, like this is sweet. I'm like, man, I, that's what I need. And I remember they get to the point where, you know, the, I see these commercials and it's getting closer to Christmas and here I was a little kid. And I'm saying, hey, mom or dad, you know, trying to give them hints till finally like forget the hints. I just told them, you know, I really would like that toy. That's so cool, you know. Christmas came. At some point you're opening up gifts. It's like the last gift and I open it up and I'm like, oh man, it was amazing. That's it. Look, that's what I was hoping for. This is the greatest. And, and I remember when my bro- older brother, Johnny, he helped me kind of you know, get it all set up. And so we, we get it all, the track together. We plug it into the wall. There's cords going. There's cords going to, you know, little controllers, you know, talk about old school, but that's what's happening. So, you know, and then we put the cars on the track and we're like, on your mark, you set, go, pull the triggers. When I pull the trigger, when I pulled mine, that's all you did is pull a trigger. How fun is that? You know what I mean? It's a little different, you know. But anyway, I pull the trigger, and Johnny pulls the trigger. Sure enough, his car and my car are going around the track, and his car's going around the track, but mine goes to the first corner and just goes and just shoots right off and stops. And I'm like, whoa, wait, stop, stop. I'm like, come on, hold on, let's do this again. Here we go, ready? And your mark is set, go. Mine shoots off again, it starts going around the track. And and I was like, ah, stop again. And, And it didn't do that on the commercial. And I realized you couldn't pull the trigger the whole way. You had to kind of, you know, and we played with that toy for maybe an hour. And then we put it away. And I don't ever remember playing with that toy again. Now, you know what you call that? Well, some of you, I know what you call You're like, Jeremy, that's called a spoiled brat. You know, okay, I'm not going to disagree. But I think what you call that is deceitful desires. If I just had this, I'll be satisfied. And that's the nature of all this. So that's where we are. We're like, man, if I just had these things, I would feel so satisfied in life. Consider that. You know, you, you get your iPhone and you think, man, it's awesome. But you didn't realize that iPhone 37 just came out yesterday. You know, like, what? You know, you know. It's like anytime you get something, there's always bigger and better. And that's the nature of the lust. Never satisfied. Deceitful desires. And we're all drawn away, as James would say, by our own lusts. And enticed. You know what's interesting? The same thing that may lure you may not lure the same the person right beside you. Isn't that interesting? 
And that's why these deceitful desires are there. And yet, what do we do? Well, we put these things away. This is characterized of the old self. It belongs to the former manner of life. It's corrupt through deceitful desires. So there's an element of putting it off. So here's my question to you tonight. Can you think of any sins, anything in your heart that God wants you to put off? Or have you arrived in your spiritual life? And you notice I'm smiling. What is it that God wants you to change? What is it that God wants you to forsake? Where you would truly come to him in brokenness and say, God, will you please change me? This is wrong. You're right and I'm wrong. I'm agreeing with you against me. I want to confess these things. I want to get these things right. It's like a word picture that, sure, it happened at, at conversion. That's what happened to you, wasn't it? I mean, did you really just say, oh, I just want you, Jesus? You know, that, if you just said, I just want you, Jesus, that, that's, that's not conversion. There's an element of genuine repentance and faith in Christ. If there's no turning from sin to Christ, there's an element of embracing your sin and embracing Jesus. It doesn't work that way, does it? And yet the truth is, is I meet some people that just want the fire escape. Okay, I, I don't want my sin because I don't want to go down there but they don't really want Jesus either. And so the truth is, is when you really came to Christ, this is what happens. And this is a picture of what happens in a daily basis, you could say, as a true believer, showing us actually the picture of sanctification. Go beyond this, though. Look at the next verse. Verse 23. We talked about radical amputation. But then verse 23 says, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. What is this? This would be what I would call renovating your thinking. There's a renewal process. It happens in the spirit of your mind, okay? And, you're, and then we think of this, and you can think of other verses, I think, that come to your mind, because how does this work when, when you consider verses like, like uh, uh, Titus 3, 5, and 6? What does it say? Not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy that he saved us, how did he save us? By the washing of regeneration, not the washing of baptism, the washing of regeneration, and the renewing of the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit. It's a renewal. It's through the Spirit of God. You go beyond that, though. Wait a second. Can you think of, you think of Romans 12, 1 and 2? Remember? I beseech you, I beg of you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you would present your bodies as a what? As a living sacrifice, not a dead one. He didn't say go kill yourself. He says go offer yourself as a living sacrifice. And how should that sacrifice be? Holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, or the idea is your, your only rational way of real worship before God, fully submitted and surrendered, a living sacrifice. And then what does it say? Verse two, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of the mind. When you think of transformation in that verse, too, that's where we get kind of our English word for metamorphosis. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's radical transform. It's real transformation. It's a, a caterpillar, you know, that, 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 that you know, is a cocoon and then it comes out as a butterfly. You're like, that's, okay, that's major change. 
And this whole idea, when you consider this, this idea of not being forced into the mold of the world, but instead, what's happening, you're being transformed because your mind as a believer and your heart is being renewed. Now again, to put it in a real plain way, I think of Jesus where he said this in John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Now wait a minute, sanctify sanctify them. What does it mean? To set them apart from sin unto God. That you should be sanctified. He's praying, God, sanctify them through thy truth. And then he tells you what the truth is. Thy word is truth. So now we're getting it. It's the spirit of God that works through the word of God that brings about real change in the life of a believer. And can I tell you, when I think of sanctification, it's different than justification and glorification. The moment you are saved, boom, you, you are justified, declared righteous. The moment you repent and trust in Christ, at that moment, boom, it happens. Okay? And then what's interesting, you think about glorification, though, as you die, after from the body present with the Lord, there's an element of the idea of glorification, boom. But sanctification isn't boom. This is that process where you're made into the image of Christ. It doesn't, it's not like a, ah, well, I, I, I went forward in a church service, so I'm good. I, um, you know, I, I prayed and I'm okay now. Everything's good. Um. It's, we call it progressive sanctification. There are, there are some scripture passages that does deal with positional sanctification, okay? But there's an element of the reality of the daily walk is what's called progressive sanctification. And I would ask this question to you. As a true Christian, how many... Maybe you should almost tell pastor to hold his ears for this one, but I'm not gonna let you do that, Okay. How many sermons in your life have been so radically life-changing to you? I mean, is every Sunday like, wow, it was just so life-changing? And I would suggest that we're all saying, no. And as I think in my own life, I think of a handful that really just made a massive impact. What's going on within sermons? Sermons, in one sense, as we preach the word, are for the moment. It's for the day as we're preaching. Now, again, it can bring long-term effect, can't it? But, but what's going on? At that moment, you're hearing truth. How will you respond to it? And if you're responding in obedience, what happens? Now the heart begins to be sanctified, begins to be made more into the image of Christ. But the, but the natural thing is not crisis sanctification. As I think of crisis sanctification, what's that? It's like you need to have this major crisis. Ah, blood tears. Ah, ah. And then it's like, okay, major change. No, actually, that's not the normal. I mean, sure, that happened. I mean, when I was 17, there was a massive change there. There's some times when I was probably 13, there was something that was there, you know, and in my life later, there's times where God just really stirred my heart in a real way. But as a true believer who's already in Christ, what is God doing? How does he change you? Well, from glory to glory. When you think of the book of 
of Corinthians, and you think about how as we behold our faces in a glass, in a mirror, we think of how, how sure enough we spend time with God. What is he doing? From each time we are in the word, humbling ourselves and responding in obedience to the scriptures, what is he doing? He is making us more like Christ. That's the normal way. So the question is this. Are you letting the word the Spirit of God, through the Word, change you. Are you in the Word on a daily basis, walking with God, humbling yourself? God, what does your Word say? What do you mean by what it says? Or are you just too busy? Like, what would be your excuse for not reading the scriptures? Because you can make excuses. I mean, I'm, I'm just so busy, Jeremy, you know. Really? Um, because I find this, you're actually, you actually always do what you really want to do. Did you know that? So, like, could you imagine going to your work... And you said, I would have been here the last three days, but I've been so busy. You say that to your boss. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and what would they say? Well, don't worry about that because you have a lot more time because now you're fired. <laughs> you know what I mean? In other words, because work is important, you go. Because school is important, you go. It's like if you really want to play sport, you know, and you're, you're at a high level, guess what you do? You go to the early practice. You go. You do everything you want to do. Again, that's like a person saying, man, I was so busy, I couldn't figure out time to eat. I haven't eaten. It's been probably three weeks now. I haven't even eaten a thing. Man, I've just been so busy. No, you don't do that. You always find time to eat. Like as one of my kids said to the other one when they were littler, if you don't eat, you will die. And that is true, isn't it? Because it's important you do it. And if, and if truly it's important to you and that process of sanctification of God renewing your mind, what will you do? You're gonna get in the scriptures. You're gonna say, God, change me. And what's interesting about this passage in verse 23, that's, that is in the present tense. That's not in the past. It's saying there's a constant renewal of your mind. And then when you think of this whole idea of then, then replacing the old sin habits, that's really number three, because yes, you radically amputate sin, there's a renewal of the mind, and there's a replacement of the old sin habits, and you see this, and you put on now the new man, the new self, that's what, you, that's what happened, and created in the, after the likeness of God. So he's making us into his image in true righteousness and holiness, it's us meeting our obligations and doing right. It's us, the idea is holiness, making us more like the Lord. That's what's going on here. It's both, you could say, you know, horizontal and vertical. That's what's going on. He's doing that work of change as we humble ourselves and we respond in obedience to the scriptures. And then I love this because you have a bunch of illustrations. It's just right there. It bombards you with illustrations. Verse 25, showing us again, the, the way we change. Verse 25, of putting off, renewing, putting on. Wherefore, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth, the truth with his neighbor. Why? For we are members one of another, speaking of the body of Christ, of the church. Do you lie? Do you, do you intentionally deceive people with your speech? 
Do you, as teenagers, do that towards your parents or towards one another? Or parents towards each other? I mean, you start thinking, or within the church. And yet it tells us we're supposed to be speaking truth. We're members one of another. We're part of the body of Christ. That's what true believers do. We, we put that off. We have our minds renewed. We speak truth. Then verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Now that's interesting. There's a command in scripture to be angry, but don't sin in the process. And do not let the sun go down on your anger because you go to bed angry, you wake up angry. And give no opportunity to the devil. That's what happens when you go to bed angry. You give the devil a foothold in your life. Destructive. And then you have this in verse, verse 28, the let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. What does that mean? It means to the point of exhaustion you work. You, when you work, we should, we should, in the power of God's strength, we, do, we give our whole self as we work. We do it for the glory of God. And you know what it'll do in a, in a culture of a bunch of lost people that what's going to happen, you will stand out. I mean, sometimes they'll say, man, can you slow down a little bit? I mean, sometimes they tell you, like, you're making us look bad. Well, wait, what are you talking We should all be working hard. But we work, we labor to the point of exhaustion, doing honest work. Um, a guy came to me, it was actually at a, a young adults retreat. It was in, at Ironwood Camp in California. And I, he was newly saved. And I said, so what do you do for a living? And you know what he said to me? He goes, well, I'm a bartender. I go, oh. And he's kind of describing this. But he says, you know, I just, more and more, I just don't feel like it's right. Well, uh, I mean, as you consider this, why are you thinking this? And he starts bringing up scripture. And I'm thinking, you're thinking correctly. This is a good way. I just, I didn't want to be like, hey, you know, what are you doing? You know, I just, he, here he is understanding this and going, no, this is, this is not part of my lifestyle anymore as a believer. And I'm putting myself in this really bad situation. And yet here's saying doing honest work with his own hands. They may have to give, they have something to share with one, anyone who is in need. I mean, we don't work to get. The idea is you as a new believer, as a believer, you work to give. Interesting, isn't it? Far different. And then it says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as it's fit the occasion. Consider your speech, corrupting talk, sapros, any form of filthy communication, taking God's name in vain. You could actually be cursing. You could be telling dirty jokes. You could be gossiping. You could actually maybe in some ways, you just overly talk. Some of you are gifted. I, I have this unfortunate gift. And uh, where there's a multitude of words, there's sin. And so... But wait a second, think about this. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up. When you speak, do you, do you seek to build one another up? I'm not talking about flattery, but encouraging one another. As this fits the occasion, your speech is, is careful with how you would use it. You don't just speak to speak you're careful when you would say things, maybe even when you would confront. It's, it's, it's using your speech in a wise way. God, help me. That it may give grace to those who hear. Are we ministers of grace with our speech? Consider your speech in the last 24 hours. What has it been like? And probably if we're honest, we go, ooh, God changed me. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed 
for the day of redemption. This is amazing because it shows eternal security here, but it also shows grieving the spirit. What grieves it? Is it the corrupt communication or is it verse 31? And the truth is it's ambiguous. It's just, it's all sin. Sin grieves the spirit. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice, all forms of anger, and yet get rid of it all. And what do you do in replacement of it? You be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. If you're in Christ, this is the whole point. You can change, but you must change God's way. And so what you've just seen really tonight is, is Paul, the Apostle Paul, laying out a biblical mandate and showing us what, gen, what real change looks like for the believer. The question is, are we humbling ourselves as believers and experiencing this on a daily basis? Or are we resisting the Spirit of God and neglecting the Word in our life and not experiencing true change? So what does God want to change? Now, if you're here tonight, you say, well, Jeremy, okay, I'm not in Christ. (laughs) Well, then it's impossible. You can try New Year's resolutions, but you'll get no real heart change until you repent and trust in Christ alone and come to him. May God help you. We can change, but we gotta change his way. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the truths that we've heard tonight. And I pray that tonight you would deal with us that we would not make excuses for our sin. But we'd come to you and we'd say, dear God, would you change me? Will you work in me? Will you renew my heart and my mind? Will you forgive me? God, help us to be humble people. And then God is... That change begins to occur in our heart and our life as we seek to replace the old sin habits. God, would you give us wisdom in how to do that? We need you, God. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I'm going to ask a couple of questions to us tonight as we consider this time of reflection and meditation. Have you experienced the new life? Maybe you're here tonight and you've never done that. Maybe there's never been a time in your life where you've experienced truly conversion, where Jesus saves you. But I wonder, maybe you're here and you'd say, Jeremy, I have been saved. There's been a time in my life where I have responded to the gospel through repentance and faith, and he really has changed me. Now, there's things, more things that clearly need to change, but, but since conversion, there's been, there has been a change. Jeremy, I, I've experienced true conversion by the grace of God. If that's true of you, could you slip your hand up as a testimony? Jeremy, I really believe I've experienced true conversion by the grace of God. Amen, amen, numbers of you. And you can put your hands down. Is there anyone here there tonight who would say, Jeremy, will you remember me in prayer? Because when, it, when you talk about genuine change and genuine conversion, I don't think that's happened to me yet. And it does concern my heart. I just want you to remember me in prayer. I don't think I've been saved yet. But would you pray for me? Would you remember me? I won't point you out, but just by an upraised hand, I'll just, I'll just know in my mind to pray for you. Jeremy, pray for me. I don't think I'm saved yet. This concerns me. Pray for me, please. Okay. If that would be you, you're nervous, you want to talk to somebody, please make a beeline after the service, okay? We'd want to talk to you. But I wonder how many believers is God speaking to us about areas of sin? Because I would suggest to you, if you examine your heart and you never feel that, like, oh, there's not really, can't think of anything ever, 
Let me remind you, the Apostle Paul said, a wretched man that I am. He called himself the chief of sinners. How could he do that, being the greatest missionary, basically, who ever lived? Because when you walk close to deity, you walk close to the Lord, the more sinful you see yourself. I wonder if sometimes we think we're, we're doing pretty good because we don't really walk that close with him. Tonight, I, maybe as God's dealing with your heart, here you are, you can confess and forsake sin in your life. Whatever God's dealing with you about, you can talk to him about that. This would give you this opportunity right now where we are. Actually, maybe even in your own heart, you might even want to make some commitments. Dear God, by your grace, I've not been in the word faithfully, but by your help and strength, I want to be. And I, maybe again, it's renewing some things of the past. God, I used to be much more faithful, but I, I haven't been. But I, I want you to change me in this area. And so tonight, as God has dealt with your heart, would you respond to him? I'm gonna have my wife just play through a simple hymn. Would you respond to the Lord? God is dealing with our hearts so often. I like as the Apostle Paul even said this in the book of Acts. He said he exercised his conscience to be void of offense towards God and towards man. You know who we sin against the most? Well, clearly every sin we ever do is against God. But the truth is we sin against people because we are relational people. And when we do, we should say something to those people. We should not just go up to them and say, sorry. Or we admit, I have done wrong and here's what it is. And I've asked God to forgive me and I want to ask you to forgive me. You know who you sin against the most is the people you're around the most. Which is the people we say we love the most. And so maybe it is tonight as we would leave here that as you're driving home, some of you need to have conversations or tonight before you go to bed to say, hey, listen, I need to talk to you, to your spouse, to your kids or to your parents. God is dealing with me in these areas. I've asked God to forgive me and mom and dad, will you forgive me? Here's what I've done. This is wrong. It's amazing as we have a clear conscience and we live that way, the power of God manifested in life that is not seeking to hold on to sin. So if God is dealing with you tonight, would you respond to him that way?